All right, good evening, everyone. If you're visiting or if you just stumbled in, um, on Sunday evenings, we just move right through the Bible, three to five chapters a week. We currently find ourselves in the prophet of Jeremiah, and we're picking up in chapter 12. Excuse me, chapter 13. As we get started here, um, we find a new tool in Jeremiah's prophetic arsenal. We have seen in the book that Jeremiah is conveyed by God the, the word of the Lord, and so he speaks forth the word of God, which is the role of a prophet. We've also seen occasions where Jeremiah has a vision, and then that vision becomes part of his communication, part of his prophecy. Uh, tonight, we see he's called out to, uh, called to act out a prophecy. Uh, it's like a prophetic object lesson, and this is one that's consistently used by the prophets, this idea of an object lesson or an acted out prophecy. Um, we'll see quite a few more of them in the book of Jeremiah. Um, we find them in Ezekiel. Of course, one of the largest ones is when Hosea is called to marry a particular woman, uh, and then after she goes into prostitution, to take her back to personify God's love for Israel. If you were with us this morning, uh, Jesus' cursing of the fig tree is one of these prophetic acts. But look at the one here in Jeremiah 13, verse 1. The Lord said to me, Go and buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist, and do not dip it in water. Now, sometimes in the Old Testament, it can be difficult to nail down more unique pieces of clothing. Uh, we can find references to them, but we can't find them with a definition or a picture in a Target catalog, right? And so it can be difficult to know what they are. I would suggest to you that this is very likely not merely a loincloth, and I appreciate the older translations that identify this as a sash, because we'll see the whole idea of this garment is it's supposed to be visible and attractive. It's an accoutrement, okay? It's ornamental in nature. Um, but also remember that as Jeremiah puts this on and wraps it around his waist, uh, it probably doesn't match the rest of his attire. Uh, being a prophet in a long line of prophets, he probably wears the classic prophetic garb, uh, rough fabrics, earth tones, etc. Okay? Uh, and so for him to take a brand new, bright white piece of linen and wear it around is noticeable. Everybody knows prophets when they see them because of the way they dress, but here goes Jeremiah with this clearly clashing garment, this very beautiful and attractive, um, somewhat expensive garment that he's wearing over, you know, his camel fur um, prophetic gear. And so God calls him to do that. He says, do not dip it in water, um, which would probably make it uh, less pliable. Uh, less prepared for what's happened, uh, what's to happen next. And so, verse 2, I bought a loincloth according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Now, one of the things that we're not given in this passage is a real timeline. We're going to see a lot of things happen. We don't know how much time is included, but I would suggest to you, because the whole point of this is to be acted out, 
that by the time we get to this second word of the Lord here, Jeremiah has been wearing this out in public for weeks, maybe even months, okay? Until people have gotten used to Jeremiah wearing it, and then God gives him a new command in verse 4, take the loincloth that you have brought, which is around your waist, and arise and go to the Euphrates and hide it there in the cleft of the rock. Okay, I know we're not always ancient Near East geographically competent, okay? Uh, The Euphrates is nowhere near Israel, okay? We're talking 430 miles from from Judah where Jeremiah is, okay? We're talking a 30 to 40 day journey each way, okay? So it's significant. So why the Euphrates? If you have a decent kingdom map in the back of your Bible, the one that shows the different empires that ransacked the ancient world, Assyria, Babylon, Rome, and you look at the Babylon Empire, you will see that the capital city of Babylon, conveniently known as Babylon, is right on the Euphrates River, okay? So Jeremiah has been constantly warning Israel, specifically the kingdom of Judah, all that's left of Israel, uh, that Babylon is going to come in from the north and take them away to Babylon, okay? So now can you see why the garment has to be buried at this particular river? Even though this isn't something that Judah will observe at all, right? Uh, At best, they're going to hear about this from Jeremiah. He's going to say, hey, you've probably wondered where I've been the last two months. Well, I took a trip to the Euphrates, okay? But he carries it this long journey. Verse 5, I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, arise, go to the Euphrates and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. Okay, so He takes this 30-day journey, he buries it, he comes back for 30 days, and then many days later, God sends him back to look for it. So all told, we've covered a couple of months, maybe even as much as a year so far, and suddenly God says, all right, go back and find it. And since it's buried near a river underground for months and months, we find what we expect. In verse 7, I went to Euphrates and dug, and I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it, and behold, the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing, okay? It's, it's soiled, it's ratty, it's full of holes, it's useless, okay? And so this is the picture, and again, it's not stated, but I assume he brings this back with him to Judah and maybe even wears it as he begins to explain what this all means. Verse 8, the word of the Lord came to me, thus says the Lord, even so, I will spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. In the same way as this garment was destroyed in Babylon, in the same way that its beauty was stripped in Babylon, so I am going to do to Judah. Verse 10, this evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord. Okay, now, basically God says in the same way that this piece of linen had a purpose, so does Israel. In the same way that this linen was worn by Jeremiah to be attractive, to be an adornment, to draw attention, to accentuate God's beauty, if you will. So was this cloth. But the truth is, God's about to send them into Babylon, and that destruction is not going to be towards the purpose of that beauty, right? It's going to ruin the garment. In fact, notice what he says here. He says, 
uh, he says, the whole point, Israel, was you were to cling to me. That's covenantal language. It's the language that's used of Adam and Eve in the covenant of marriage. For this reason, a man shall be joined to his wife, cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's the one that's used in Deuteronomy when God talks about bringing uh, Israel out of Egypt to be his people, and he says, and you must obey my voice, you must love me, and you must cling to me. Okay? And so there's covenant language there, but he explains what the garment was for in the next sentence there when it says uh, that, this is halfway through verse 11, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory, but they would not listen. Okay. And so notice we've got two concepts here laying side by side. The pride of Judah which is going to be destroyed, and the glory of God, which was the purpose of Israel. They were to draw attention to the Lord to show his goodness, but instead they were just kind of full of themselves, right? Not only that, but they were to cling to the Lord, but as it says here, they had forsaken him to worship other gods. But remember what is going on here, what he's saying is, in the same way as this garment, I'm going to send you to Babylon and you will be spoiled, okay? The thing we have to understand, and this was definitely part of the logic of Jeremiah's uh, population that he's addressing, is they knew that Moses and Samuel and all of the great intercessors of Israel's history constantly reminded God, for your name's sake, don't destroy your people, right? Moses says this. Uh, when Israel is mumbling against God, when Israel, in fact, builds the golden calf and is worshiping orgiastically at the bottom of the mountain, and God says, that's it, Moses. I'm done with those people. All out of your descendants create a new people. And Moses steps in and he says, if you do not bring the people into the land that you have promised, all the Egyptians will hear and believe that you are not capable of doing so. For your name's sake, have mercy and deliver them. Okay. When Israel is conquered by Babylon, remember that that is not just political conquest, but theological conquest. In the ancient world, victory in battle was juxtaposed with the strength of your gods. And here, the God of all things, the God of all nations, is going to allow his representative people on earth, his sash, if you will, to be spoiled and with that will become a mocking. With that will come a mocking of the God of Israel. Evidence, aha, your God was nothing. It reminds me of what Nathan warns David. He says, because of you, the nations shall blaspheme. Okay? And so the thing that's significant here is God is robbing Israel of that excuse. They can't say for your name's sake, and he goes, oh, that's right. My purpose in here is in some sense... I mean this in the most minimal sense because we'll see that God has a much bigger plan, but in some sense thwarted by your unfaithfulness. But that's not going to excuse them from consequence. He's willing to bear the shame for them to experience the judgment that they have coming. Their destiny was to be a name and a praise and a glory. And remember, that's not just that they were to be a people who named God or who praised God or who glorified God. God was going to bless them in such a way that they would be a manifestation of that glory, a beauty unto themselves that pointed to the goodness of God. But because they would not listen, they're going to be spoiled. Okay, now we get another uh, 
another uh, prophetic technique. As we've been following Jeremiah through the book so far, um, Jeremiah's audience is unyielding, unwilling to listen whatsoever. And Jeremiah really only has a simple message. It's the one we just read, and it's come out word for word over and over again. Because you have forsaken me and have worshipped the other gods and will not repent, judgment is coming. That's the only message that Jeremiah has conveyed 13 chapters into the book so far, but he's being tremendously creative in the conveying of it. Okay, let me put it another way. Okay, and so one he does in this months-long fashion show, right, to make a point, and then he has another way, and okay, I want you to imagine with me, you live in Jerusalem. Jeremiah has been operating for years and years, and he has one message, okay? Your natural tension, you know, as you leave the house is, uh, there's Jeremiah again, okay, I'm going to take the side street and avoid this, you know. You assume you already know what he has to say. And what happens here is Jeremiah finds a way to pique the interest of his audience, to draw them back in, and then he's just going to give them the same message over again. It's actually pretty smart. Verse 12, God says, you shall speak to them this word, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every jar shall be filled with wine. And they will say to you, do we not indeed know that every jar will be filled with wine? Okay, so in other words, God says, I want you to convey to them a truism, something that's so obvious and so basic, they'll want to argue the point with you and say, so what? Why are we talking about this? Right, but what does Jeremiah have at that? An audience, and that's the point. Now, I don't actually know why every jar will be filled with wine is such a common saying, but it must be. Right? It's some sort of a colloquialism, something that has a meaning. It's a metaphor, but unfortunately for us, it's now a dead metaphor. Okay? It may be that this was a song that was sung in the bars of Israel. Right? Let every vessel be filled with wine. Okay? Um, or it may be more proverbial. Don't you know that every jar will be filled with wine? Either way, it's become such a truism that God knows that they're going to respond, don't we already know that? Which is exactly what happens, verse 13. Then you will say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will fill with drunkenness all the inhabitants of this land, the kings who sit on David's thrones, the priests, the prophets, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will dash them one against another. Fathers and sons together, declares the Lord, I will not pity or spare or have compassion that I should not destroy them. Okay. Now, notice this. There's a little play on ideas here. When you fill jars with wine, you just have jars. When you fill people with wine, you have drunks, right? And so he's straddling both of them. And if you have, uh, if you have a translation that says wineskins here, that's unfortunate because it misses the picture. Because if you take two wineskins together and you bang them together, nothing happens. They slosh. But if you have wine jars, if you have big clay vessels full of, of wine and you bang them together, they break. Okay? And so the idea is here that these vessels of Israel that are now tipsy become, if you can imagine, anthropomorphized jars. Okay? Think of... Um, Fantasia, where Mickey brings all of those brooms to life and the mop buckets and they're all doing the work. Okay, here's a whole bunch of wine vessels and when you put the wine in them, because they're now alive, they're now drunk and sloshing around and crashing into each other and it spoils the whole point, okay? But really, again, this is just the same message over again. Judgment is inevitable, okay? It's a sucker punch, if you will. 
Okay, and then following verse 15, hear and give ear, be not proud for the Lord has spoken. Okay, we saw pride come up earlier, didn't we? With the garment, they, they, they were the pride of Judah, the pride of Jerusalem that he was going to destroy. But here he says up front, we can do with that, deal with that pride now. There's still a way out for Judah if they would just listen. Hear and give ear, be not proud for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God. Remember that was their purpose. Their life had become one of pride, but their purpose was to be one of glorifying God. But this phrase, give glory to the Lord your God in this context, conveys something else as well. It's not just worship God, not just praise God. In fact, Jeremiah criticizes the worship of Jerusalem earlier on because the temple is up and running. The sacrifices are going. They're going through all the motions of worship, but their lives don't reflect the worship of God. But here, when we read, give glory to the Lord, there's a few significant parallels, and I just want to point you to two of them. One is from the book of Joshua, okay? In the book of Joshua, after the defeat of Jericho, where God comes up with a miraculous and super strange strategy, right? Without firing an arrow, without swinging a sword, without bringing in a battering ram, they go to this fortress city of uh, Jericho, and they march around it according to the Lord's order once once a day, and then at the end of the day, they blow the trumpets, and then they do it the next day, and on the seventh day, they walk around it seven times, and when they blow the trumpets that time, the battle's just over. The wall collapses, and they step in, right? What happens after that is they take on a little town named Ai, and they're so pumped up on such a victory over this fortress city uh, that they try and take the town without all of their men. They also don't listen to God or his plans at all, and on top of that, they are unaware of the fact that one man in the camp, a man named Achan, has actually broken God's one rule on Jericho, which was that all of the loot and the plunder was to be given to God. But he holds on to a garment for himself and a little bit of silver, and he buries it in his tent. Okay? So they go to Ai because of this disobedience. Everything goes sideways. A bunch of men die, uh, and then God explains to Joshua it's because there's sin in the camp. So they begin to take lots, okay, and they go tribe to clan to family until it's Achan. And this is what Joshua says to Achan. Confess and give glory to God. Here you are, the lots are here. Confess and give glory to God. We see the same thing, interestingly enough, in a totally different context in the Gospel of John. There's an occasion in John chapter 9 where Jesus heals a man who was born blind, a unique case in all of Jesus' miracles. Not a person who had lost their sight, a person who had never seen. Okay? And he does this amazing miracle, and the man who he healed comes under interrogation of the religious leaders. They don't like Jesus already, and they are most bothered that Jesus didn't just heal the man of his blindness, but also told him to take up his bed and walk, despite the fact that it was the day of the Sabbath, a day when there shouldn't be rest. And so they're trying to get one testimony, and only one. Who is the one who told you to break the law? And he's just trying to explain to them, he's the one who gave me my sight. And it's kind of this odd back and forth. But at one point, the Pharisees say this to the blind man, give glory to God as for this man, we know he was a sinner. Okay. Again, it's one of confession. I would suggest to you in Jeremiah, his point here is the same. The call is not a call just to sing songs to God or even to worship him in some generic way, but to do the one thing that Judah is unwilling to do, to confess 
to own up to these things, to confess their sins. But notice verse 16, give the glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains and while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. Okay, this extended metaphor is as if you're traveling between cities, right? Ancient world, no streetlights. And you can tell that the sun is going down and you're measuring your journey and saying, can I make it to safety before nightfall? Because what happens if you don't? You can't see your path, right? And you're not in, you know, the, the um, flat terrain of the inner city, but in the mountainous terrain. In fact, near Judah... This is the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. At least that's the one that's easiest to think of. That's the same one that is full of bandits and danger that Jesus uses for his illustration of the Good Samaritan. Okay? And so the idea here is imagine you're coming into Jerusalem and the sun's going down and you're trying to get there before it descends. Okay? It's, it's dangerous and it's timely. When it mentions here, while you look for light, he turns it into gloom. It's almost as if they've mistaken sunset for sunrise, right? They're in the twilight and they think, oh good, the sun's coming up, I can make it home. And it just gets darker and darker until they're caught in it, okay? But verse 17, if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Now again, we have this question of who's speaking here? We constantly find this interplay between what we call the confessions of Jeremiah, where he speaks up and shares his heart, and the commanded, thus saith the Lord, right, where he carries the message of God, okay? Um, I would suggest to you that as easy as it would be to just say, this must be Jeremiah's words, to suggest again that it seems to have divine characteristics. In fact, notice that strange little statement there, if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. Why in secret? Actually, Jeremiah's ministry is full of weeping. It's, it's relatively public and manifested. Why does it say it here? It's because what's going to happen in the consequence of pride, what will be the most visible and most tangible, will be God's anger being poured out. That's the obvious. If anyone wants to look at the circumstances of what's going on to Judah, they would go, their God is displeased with them. Okay? Wrath is very easy to see because it's so visible and obvious. There's a secret weeping as well. There's a grieving going on as well. And we've seen this uh, in Jeremiah as well, that God's feelings about Israel are complex. They're multi-layered because the situation is multi-layered. And so here, I'll weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Then verse 18, say to the king and the queen mother, take a lowly seat for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. The cities of the Negev, that's the south, are shut up with none to open them, and Judah is taken to exile, wholly taken into exile. And so now he's given a message specifically for the king and for his mother. And almost all commentators agree that this must be Jehoiachin and Jehoiachin's mom. And the reason is because what happens here? They lose the crown and then they're marched out of town. And if we turn to 2 Kings 24, that's exactly what happens to Jehoiachin. Now, while you're turning there, remember, uh, Jeremiah's ministry begins in the reign of Josiah. And then we have Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. Okay, And so this is the fourth 
of the five reigns that Josiah, uh, or fourth of the five reigns that Jeremiah is in the midst of. But look here at 2 Kings 24. Specifically beginning here in verse 8. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of El-Nathan of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. Just a few really quick notes. One, notice that he's relatively young when he begins, uh, begins ruling, just 18 years of age. Uh, it is common in Judah for the mother of the king to get named as well in these transitions, very common, but we can assume that she has a more significant role in her young son's reign, right? The second thing that I want to point out here is it says that he only reigned for three months and that he was a bad king. Those two things go together, okay? He follows in the footstep of the kings before him. In fact, uh, he may have reinstated some of the horrors of his grandfather, um, and so notice, during his reign, three months in, verse 10, at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while the servants were besieging it, and Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself, and his mother, and his servants, and his officials and palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign, and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king's house, and cut into pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon the king of Israel had made, as the Lord had foretold. Okay, so this is the second time Babylon significantly attacks Judah. This time, he carries away King Jehoiachin, who surrenders and lives out the rest of his days in Babylon. And this is also when he takes the servants from Jerusalem. Think Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They all come from here. Okay? Uh, and then finally, this is where the temple is dismantled and the wealth of Israel is taken. But actually, the people, the unimportant ones, stay for a little while longer until Zedekiah tries to put up a fight. And then we get the final exile that leads into Babylon. But do you see here how suitable this story is to the prophecy that we were just reading in Jeremiah? Say to the king and to his mother, lay your crown down. It's gone. Be marched off into exile. That's exactly what happens here. But the fullness of what we were reading about Jeremiah doesn't happen until the following king's reign in Zedekiah. Going back to Jeremiah chapter 13 verse 20, lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given you, your beautiful flock? What will you say when they set his head over you, those to whom yourself taught to be friends to you? Remember, Babylon was an early ally of Judah. Although God constantly, especially in the book of Isaiah, warns Judah not to make friends with foreign powers, but to trust in God who will keep them safe. It's the friendliness with Babylon that opens up the possibility of them taking advantage of Judah. And it's not hard to see, right? If you call up the bully on the phone and say, hey, look, you're so big and strong and powerful. Why don't we be friends? What are you also saying? Hey, look, there is no way I could stand up to you, so I'd rather be on your side, okay? It's a confession of weakness. And for Judah, it ends up being what makes Judah such attractive spoil for Babylon, 
And so they were friends, but he says, your friends are going to end up being your enemies. They're going to be over you. Okay. Verse 22, uh, well, sorry, tail end of 21 there. Will not pangs take hold of you like those of a woman in labor? Okay, which is just an extreme expression of pain, right? Isn't it going to really hurt? Verse 22, and if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? Is it for the greatness, or it is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence? Now, there's no getting around how severe that statement is. That is a statement of military rape. That's what it is. Okay. The soldiers are going to march into town, skirts will be lifted up, and they will suffer violence. Okay. It's a strong picture here of what's coming, and he knows that at that point they're going to go, why is this happening? But remember, he's warning them preemptively about this. When there's still time to turn around, he knows that they're not going to get it. Like he told Jeremiah, they're a stubborn people. Their ears are closed. They will not hear. And here we find out why, verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. He looks at Judah and he says, he says, you're so ingrained with evil. It's become so natural to you. It's it's irreversible. In the same way that a leopard can't go, I think I'm going to try a different style this year. In the same way that our skin color is relatively permanent. Okay. Um, but notice, as we see here, that is a statement about their inability to change, not God's. The, this is not God just saying, you're stuck, and I'm surrendering you to the wrath that you deserve, and there's no fixing it. The problem is they can't fix it. The problem is there's nothing they can do to change these things. But we'll see is in just a second, God still has an open-handed invitation. God has no problem changing skin color or giving the leopard a new, uh, a new suit. Okay, verse 24, he says, I will scatter you like chaff driven by the wind from the desert. Chaff, again, is this casing that's wrapped around wheat. And generally, you don't scatter chaff you separate it from the wheat. But as we've seen earlier in Jeremiah, it's as if Judah is 100% chaff, no nutritional value. And so you throw this up in the air and it's just going to go. It's just going to fly away. It's going to be again exile. Verse 25, this is your lot. The portion that I've measured out to you declares the Lord because you've forgotten in me and trusted in, my, in lies. I myself will lift up your skirts over your face and your shame will be seen. And so it's not just the enemies of war, but the just judgment of God that's happening here. Verse 27, I've seen your abominations, your adulteries, and your neighings, your lewd whorings on the heels of the field. Woe to you, O Jerusalem. How long will it be before you are made clean? See, there again, we see a recognition that being made clean is available. Earlier, Jeremiah says, the problem is, Israel, you don't have a soap strong enough to scrub out your sin. But God does. And that's been made clear very many times, but they are unwilling to go to him that they might be cleansed. The author of Hebrews tells us a similar thing is true with Jesus, that if we forsake the salvation Jesus offers, we're damned just because there is no other salvation available. So to turn away from the provision is to turn away from the provision. And it's the same thing here. They won't take God's open hand. They won't take 
his offer of cleansing. Chapter 14, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Now, notice there it's the drought, not a drought, not an drought, right? It's a particular drought. And uh, honestly, the ancient Near East history is full of them. This one is unique for two reasons. One, because it's tremendously significant. Okay? This is not just a bad season, but a really, really bad season. A tremendously dangerous time. And then two, as God makes clear all the way back in Deuteronomy, famine is one of the warning bells of judgment. It's one of the ways that God would remind the people, you're off track, you're unfaithful, wake up and return back to me. Okay? And so at some point in Jeremiah's run as a prophet, there is a famine, one that his audience knows, even though we don't know it from other books. And notice here he's given a word, verse 2, Judah mourns and her gates languish. Her people lament on the ground and the cry of Jerusalem goes up. Her nobles send their servants for water. They come to cisterns, they find no water, they return with their vessels empty. They are ashamed and confounded and cover their heads. Okay, and so it's as if we're watching nobles at the breakfast table and they send their servants to get water, but the wells are empty. Why is that significant? Because nobles have deeper resources, right? The first people to suffer the most in a time of famine are the poor. But here, even the wealthy in their big backyard dug cisterns by the way, the only reason you need a cistern is for when rain won't fall, right? It gathers water as it rains and builds up a storage system so that when the rivers fail, for example, you've got this backup system, but the backup systems are empty, even for the wealthy. That's the point, okay? And so they're ashamed and confounded, meaning they're out of paths, they're out of ways. It's one thing to be, uh, to, uh, you know, exercise ingenuity when things get hard. But what do you do when water's just gone? Even the wealthy are at the end of their rope, right? That's the idea here. Verse 4, because of the ground that is dismayed, since there is no rain on the land, the farmers are ashamed. They cover their heads. Even the doe in the field forsakes her newborn fawn because there's no grass. That little word even there stresses the fact that there's something about the deer that makes this more surprising than ever. And again, I'm, I'm no um, zoologist, and I can't always believe what commentators say, but they suggest that deers are more committed than other animals, less likely to forsake their young. And so the idea here is, once again, that even the doe, right, the most loyal of mothers is recognizing how bad things are and abandoning. In the same way, verse 6, the wild donkeys stand on the bare heights. They pant for air like the jackals. Their eyes fail because there is no vegetation. And the idea here is that donkeys are tremendously good at wilderness living, at finding what little grass there is, but even they have exhausted their natural ability to find grass because the drought is so bad. Okay, now what happens here in verse 7? Uh, we have to ask a question. The question is, who's speaking? And there's really only two options. Either what follows in verse 7 is Jeremiah's confession, he begins to speak as an interceder for Judah, or this is the words of the Judeans themselves, right? Uh, I've said it before, but although we as human beings often have fair-weather friends, right, the people who only stick around when things are good, lots and lots of people are God's foul-weather friends. When things get really bad, they knock on his door, right? You know the saying that there's no atheists in foxholes. 
right? When things get really bad and we recognize we're out of options, you go to the divine, even if you wouldn't regularly, right? Um, but, but read this with me. Verse 7, though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. Okay, when this starts, it seems like a pretty good confession, right? There's an ownership of sin. There's a call for God to, you know, for his own name uh, sake to save them. Verse 8, O you hope of Israel, is Savior in times of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for the night? Why should you be like a man confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot save? Okay, now that's where we go, hey, wait a minute. Who's really at fault here? Who are they blaming? They're quick to say, look, I know, I know I've sinned, but why are you being such a stranger to us, right? Why are you acting like you're just passing through Israel? Isn't your temple here? Don't you reside with these people? And then he says, they say, why should you be like a man confused or like a mighty warrior who cannot save? Where are they putting the blame for this? On God. Okay. Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. But who's done the leaving in this relationship? Jeremiah chapter 2 says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have made for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now do you see how in this circumstance they're actually living through the detriment of that reality? And yet they still have the gall to say, why would you leave us? Why would you forsake us? If you read the Psalms, they're full of people calling out for God to keep his word to protect the righteous. And it sounds a whole lot like this. Right? The psalmist is always saying, don't forsake me, Lord. Deliver me from my enemies. But Judah can't pray that prayer, honestly. Even though they tack on a confession at the beginning, we have reason to find this a little bit suspect. In fact, look at how, what God says here in verse 10. Thus says the Lord concerning this people, they have loved to wander thus, they have not restrained their feet. They say, God, why are you acting like a wanderer passing through town? And he goes, you're the ones who are wandering. God's not the one who left. They are. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquities and punish their sins. The Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. This is the third time in Jeremiah that God has called Jeremiah to stop interceding. Stop praying. I will not answer a prayer because what's needed is not intercession, but repentance. Okay? Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. Though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. Again, fasting is an external expression of an inward change, but it means nothing without the inward change. The sacrifices are not what God is after. Repentance is what he's looking for. Okay? And so the external going through the motions is not going to cut it. Verse 13 Jeremiah begins to intercede with a new tactic. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Okay, so notice what Jeremiah's argument is. Can you really blame the people, God, when all of these false prophets have misled them? That's the idea here. Now, to be fair, how successful can you be as a prophet if you say, God will not bring famine on you and the cisterns are empty, right? 
the people are in a place where their favorite voices have been disproven, and yet repentance isn't showing. But Jeremiah is trying to recognize that uh, there are deceivers, and therefore there are the deceived. Jeremiah is trying to recognize, as he has earlier, that there are leaders in Israel, and they've been leading Israel astray. And so he calls this out and he says, but the reason they're doing this is because they've been deceived by all these voices. But notice what God says, verse 14, the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to speak, to, uh, speak or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say, sword and famine shall not come upon the land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. In other words, he says, Jeremiah, your words are going to come to pass. And all these false prophets are going to be proven to be false. God doesn't bring a special judgment on these prophets, just the same one that he's already bringing. But he reiterates that it's going to be inevitable. But he doesn't stop there, verse 16. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and sword, with none to bury them, their wives, their sons, their daughters, for I will pour out their evil upon them. They're left without an excuse. Verse 17, you shall say to them this word. Now again, remember asking about where we see Jeremiah's heart and where we see God's heart? Here's a place where we clearly see overlap. This is the thus saith the Lord, tell the people this. And yet when we read it, it reads like the weeping prophet Jeremiah, but it is actually the word of God. You shall say to them this word, let my eyes run down with tears night and day and let them not cease for the virgin daughter of my people is shattered with a great wound with a very grievous blow. He says, tell them that I'm weeping. Tell them that I see what's coming and I grieve it. It's not been a week that we've been in Jeremiah that I haven't referred to Jesus doing the same thing during the triumphal entry, right? As some people are crying, Hosanna, save now, save now, and the religious leaders are saying, rebuke your disciples for this blasphemy. So we have anger, we have happiness, but Jesus is weeping as he rides in Jerusalem. Woe to you, Jerusalem. How often I wanted to gather you, like a mother hen does its chicks, but you were unwilling. And because you did not know the day of your visitation, destruction will come upon you. We see the same thing with God here. He's weeping, and it's amazing, isn't it, that he refers to the people of Israel here as the virgin daughter of my people Israel? Okay. One of Jeremiah's primary ways of accusing Israel is adulterous. It's almost as if God is seeing them as they could be or should be as he desired them to be. Verse 18, if I go out into the field, behold, those pierced by the sword. If I enter the city, behold, the diseases of famine, for that both the prophet and the priest ply their trade through the land and have no knowledge. And then again, the words of Jeremiah, have you utterly rejected Judah? Does your soul loathe Zion? Why have you struck us down so that there's no healing for us? We looked for peace, but no good came, for a time of healing, but behold, terror. We acknowledged our wickedness, O Lord, and the iniquity of our fathers, for we sinned against you. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember, and do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the false gods of nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord, our God? We set our hope on you. 
for you do all these things. And so here, Jeremiah makes one last attempt at intercession. And it's a good one. In fact, if you look at the intercessions we find in other places, you'll find a lot of similarities. In fact, Jeremiah here is drawing from the greats. Remember, he's well acquainted with the Old Testament that precedes him. He's pulling out all the stops, if you will, and begging God. But notice chapter 15, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn towards this people. Okay. Moses and Samuel were both known as great intercessors. I mentioned Moses earlier, right? When the people uh, make the golden calf and God offers Moses from your line. I'll make new descendants, but these people are done. And he says, let it not be so, Lord. And he intercedes for the people. In fact, that's not the only time when Israel refuses it to enter into the promised land. God intercedes for them and says, forgive them of their sins. And amazingly, God says, I will pardon them. But their bodies will drop in the wilderness. Forgiveness is, is happening. It's coming. But consequence is already guaranteed. We see the same thing with Samuel. In fact, we might as well turn to that one. Um, Samuel, we find interceding for Israel in a couple of places, but I want to look with you at his retirement speech in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Okay, so at this point, all of Israel has come to Samuel and said, look, you're getting old. We don't like your sons ruling over us. Give us a king like the other nations. Okay. Now, God does so. He gives them Saul. Saul has an amazing victory, proving that he's a valid candidate to lead Israel. But at this point, Samuel is speaking at his retirement party of, of effect, and he basically says, just so you understand, in choosing a king, you have rejected the Lord. He was to be king over you. And this huge storm comes up, and instantly Israel goes, oh, we've made a huge mistake. We thought Samuel, or excuse me, we thought Saul was a powerful leader. They'd forgotten, you know, the power of God himself. But notice here in chapter 12, verse, um, hold on, I had it written down here. Verse 19. And the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we've added to all our sins this evil to ask ourselves a king. They say, Samuel, please pray for us. Intercede for us. Verse 20, Samuel said to the people, don't be afraid. You've done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty, for the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake, because it's pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct, in you, instruct you in the good and the right way. And he says, I may be retiring from leadership, but it would be a sin for me to stop interceding for you. He was committed to it. It was a daily job. Maybe Moses and Samuel are only beat out biblically as intercessors by possibly Jeremiah, and then definitely Jesus, who the New Testament tells us ever lives to make intercession for us. It's constantly and continuously before the Father, exposing our blood and saying, that sin was paid for. That wickedness was pardoned. Um, but nonetheless, 
here, Jeremiah's intercession, even if he was to be part of a trio with Moses and Samuel right there, it wouldn't change things. Okay? And one of the things you need to remember is because we're relatively deep into hardened and unrepentant, continuous, um, continuous sin here. Okay, and so, verse 2, when they ask you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence, and those who are for sword to the sword, and those who are for famine to famine, and those who are for captivity to captivity. I will point over them four kinds of destroyers, declares the Lord. The sword to kill, the dog to tear, the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy, and I'll make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. That is certifiably a low point in Judah's history, where Manasseh did everything he could to worship every god but Jehovah, uh, who reinstated the child sacrifice worship of Molech right in Jerusalem's backyard in the valley there. Um, all of those things. And so he reminds them of this sin. And then verse 5, Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem, or who will grieve for you? Who will turn aside to ask about your welfare? You have rejected me, declares the Lord, and you keep going backwards. So I've stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you. I'm weary of relenting. That's where the issue is. The New Testament says that God is long-suffering. Or in some places it says that God is patient. When he says here, I'm weary of relenting, it speaks of tremendous restraint. God has withheld and withheld and withheld his judgment. But no longer. And I know that sometimes we struggle with this idea of the final and total wrath of God or the fact uh, that this judgment exists in God's character at all. But let me remind you again that if patience is to be real, it has to come to an end. If not, it's indifference. If God is going to be just and righteous, he can also be patient, but he can't be indifferent to sin. And so here again, we see tremendous restraint but that restraint has run out. Verse 7, I have winnowed them with a winnowing fork in the gates of the land. I have bereaved them and I have destroyed my people. They did not turn from their ways. I've made their widows more in number than the sands of the sea. Does that sound familiar? That's a promise that God makes to Abraham about his descendants. In Genesis 22, after he offers up Isaac and God delivers Isaac from that and provides a ram, he says, because of your obedience, Abraham, your descendants will be as the sands of the sea. But here their judgment is seen so comprehensive. Now it's their widows that will be like the sands of the sea. Okay. I've brought against the mothers of young men a destroyer at noonday. I've made anguish and terror fall upon them subtly. She who bore seven has grown feeble and she has fainted away. Okay, a mother having seven children, seven being a, a number here for completion of perfection. She has everything, all of God's blessings, but it's all wiped out. It's all reversed here. Her son went down while it was yet day. She's been shamed and disgraced, and the rest of them I will give to the sword before their enemies, declares the Lord. Okay. And so again, we go this circle with things. Now, what's interesting here. Um, is at this point, we've seen 
Jeremiah conversing, these confessions, and they've primarily been interceding for Israel. Um, but now we're going to see Jeremiah beginning to uh, inter- uh, uh, pray imprecatorily. Deliver me from my enemies. Bring judgment on my enemies. Okay? And just like I said, God's uh, emotions in this are complex. So are Jeremiah's. But notice here in verse 10, Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. Basically, Jeremiah says, I am so tired of being the, the voice of judgment. I'm so tired of being hated by all of my neighbors. I'm so tired of just constantly being a one-man army against all of Israel. In fact, notice what he says next. He says, I've not lent, nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. Why does he use that illustration of borrowing and lending money? Because it always causes problems, right? He says, it'd be understandable if I owed them money, right? It'd be understandable if they were avoiding me because they owed me money. He's like, but I haven't done any of that. But it feels like that all the time with every person. Verse 11, the Lord said, have I not set you free for their good? Have I not pleaded for you before their enemy in the time of trouble and in the time of distress? Can one break iron, iron from the north and bronze? Your wealth and your treasures I will give as a spoil without price for all your sins throughout all your territory. I'll make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know, for in my anger is a fire kindled that shall burn forever. Summarily, what he's saying here is basically two things. I've promised to protect you. I'm going to keep you safe. And judgment is coming on all of these people. But notice here in verse 15, effectively what Jeremiah is about to say is, that's all fine tomorrow, but I'm not sure I'm going to survive today. He says, will I even live to see deliverance from my enemies when you've delayed destruction so long? Isn't that a little bit ironic based on his intercession just a minute ago? Here he's pushing God to just relent a little longer and here he's going, why are you taking so long? But the truth is, this is so human, isn't it? We're all over the map. And one of the amazing things about Jeremiah is you see a prophet in progress or in process, right? He's, it's, it's, fully expose what it would really be like to do a ministry like this, and it's not steadfast and stable. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a principle that he calls the principle of undulation. He says that human beings can't do stasis. Everything we do is up and down and high and low and left and right and good and bad. It's just the nature of being human. We can't seem to just be a rock. And that's true of Jeremiah, too. Even though he is truly a faithful prophet of God, he wrestles. And so here he's wrestling, and what he says is, help. Now, help. He says, I wish I'd never been born. This is too hard. And then notice what he says in verse 15. Oh, Lord, you know. Remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. Do you see what he says there in your forbearance? He says, don't be so patient with them that they execute me. Okay. And then notice he says in verse 16, your words were found and I ate them and your words became a joy to me and the delight of my heart for I'm called by your name, O Lord of hosts. Okay. He's looking back on things. He's like, in the beginning, it was good. It was amazing. It was beautiful. You gave me your word. It nourished me. It filled me with joy. But now, verse 17, I did not sit in the company of revelers, 
nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for your hand filled me with indignation. Jeremiah was far from the life of the party, right? He didn't get invited to the parties anymore. Even in the place where there was much drinking, which tends to make friends out of enemies, right? Jeremiah is not welcome because he's filled with God's indignation. Verse 18, why is my pain unceasing and my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? That's a pretty significant accusation. Earlier, Jeremiah himself identifies God as the fountain of living waters. And now he says, are you like one of those wadis, those little uh, springs that show up in the rainy season? And then when you go looking for them, when you need them, they're gone. They just dried up. They're not really a river, right? But notice what God speaks to him. He responds here, verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you and you shall stand before me. His message is not one of consolation. It's a call to repentance. In fact, this word for return, this is the number one word Jeremiah commands of Judah throughout. It's the word that he uses and does play on words of because it's really his only message, repent. And here God says, Jeremiah, repent. He says, if you repent, uh, I will restore you. You'll stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. He says, you can do two things here. You can keep talking like this, or you can do my words that I give you, which are precious. It doesn't mean that they're good news. They're, they're hard words, but they're God's words. They're precious. He says, if you do that, you'll be my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. Notice the reminder there. In this contention between Jeremiah and Judah, there's only one way that it's allowed to go. Judah returns to Jeremiah. Jeremiah can't surrender and go to them, right? Because he stands on the side of truth, because he stands with God himself. If he really wants them to be together, there to be no contention, the only way is for them to lay down their arms. He can't surrender, okay? That's what it's saying here. He says, and I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you, for I am with you to save and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. In other words, I'm still going to protect you. I'm still going to keep you safe. I'm not going to protect you from conflict, but you will be delivered. I will protect you. You will be as a wall. They will attack, but you will stay standing. All right. Now, narratively, moving through Jeremiah, we hit a very interesting point right here. Because Jeremiah is at the end of his rope. And he wants to throw in the towel. And this won't be the last time. But God basically says, repent, get back on track, come back to me, be my voice piece. Right? And then the next thing that happens is God gives Jeremiah what may be his most difficult assignment. Notice chapter 16, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, you shall not take a wife nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. He says, Jeremiah, you're going to stay single. Jeremiah has basically just said, I'm alone. No one stands with me. And he goes, I've got a new command for you, Jeremiah. It's going to stay that way. It's going to keep that way. Don't have a wife. Don't have children. In fact, Jeremiah is the only person in the entire Old Testament who's commanded to not have a family. And notice, it's not for a very positive reason. 
Verse 3, for thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who were born in this place, concerning the mothers who bore them and the fathers who fathered them in the land, they shall die of deadly diseases. They shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. They shall perish by the sword and famine, and their dead bodies, excuse me, shall be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. In other words, Jeremiah is called here to be a prophetic witness of what's coming to be familyless, because that's where all of Judah is headed. Okay. Now, there is a minor blessing in that, right? Because since he doesn't have a wife or children, he won't lose them. But obviously, God could protect Jeremiah's family just like he protects Jeremiah. The point here is not that he's being spared from the hardship that is to come. The point is that he's to live out a vision of the future of what's coming. Now notice, as it continues on here, verse 5, For thus says the Lord, Do not enter the house of mourning, or go to lament, or grieve for them, for I have taken away my peace from this people. My steadfast love and mercy, declares the Lord. Both great and small shall die in the land. They shall not be buried, and no one shall lament for them, or cut himself off, or make himself bald for them. No one shall break bread for the mourner to comfort him for the dead, nor shall give anyone him the cup of consolation to drink of his father or mother. Okay. So he says, second, no more attending funerals. You don't get to go and grieve when your neighbors die, no matter what's coming, because there won't be time to grieve when this judgment goes down. And so he's again to be a picture of this. And remember, Jeremiah is God's representative. And so he's told he can't go to funerals, and then finally he can't go to feasts, specifically weddings. Uh, Look at verse uh, 8. You shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, all silence in this place before your eyes and in your days, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. No more going to weddings because there's not going to be any more weddings. Okay. And what I find really interesting about this is that when Paul talks about singleness in the New Testament, two things. One, it's not seen as a negative thing. In fact, Paul basically says, if you want my opinion and you're single or you're widowed or if you're engaged, he says, I think you should remain single. I think it's better. I think it's good. I think it's a blessing. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. And that's striking. It, it's significantly different how Israel would have seen Jeremiah's life, how Jeremiah would have seen his own life. He would see singleness as a curse and to some degree that's what it's supposed to look like, Right? But in the New Testament, again, it's seen as a blessing. And significantly, the reason for this is because of Jesus. Israel is bound up with family because it's through family that they get to the Messiah. Abraham's promises, all the good things God's going to do, come through the seed. But Galatians tells us the seed has come. And so we don't experience the blessings of God through us having a family and having children. We experience blessings by through Jesus being grafted into the family of God, adopted as sons of God, becoming co-inheritors with Christ. But here's the other thing that's interesting. Not only do we see this huge pivot in the way we think about family, but when Paul talks about singleness in 1 Corinthians 7, it is also prophetic. He says, I think you should be single right now. I think you should consider it because the time is growing short. And you know what's interesting? He goes on to illustrate what he means by the time is growing short. 
and he illustrates with mourning and rejoicing, just like in Jeremiah here. He says the time is growing short so that he who has a wife should be as though he had none, and he who mourns as though he were not mourning, and he who rejoices as though he were not rejoicing. And so singleness for the followers of Jesus is also prophetic. It says that the world as we know it is passing away. And as Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, there's coming a time in heaven where they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Marriage is serving its purpose here and now, but singleness is is the plan that God has for all people. And so single people live out that life now, speaking of the future that is to come. But even mourning and rejoicing, it's different. Why is it for Jeremiah? Don't have a family because families are dying. But for Paul, it's... Don't have a family because you've been adopted into the family of God. For Jeremiah, it's no longer be part of the mourning because there won't be time for mourning. For Paul, it's the present time is short and the things that you grieve now will be completely smoothed over by the things that are to come. Here it's don't rejoice because this is nothing to rejoice about. But in Paul's time, it's the things you rejoice in now cannot be compared to the rejoicing that is to come. It's a relativizing because of what we have in Christ and because of what we have coming to us. But they're both prophetic in nature. And I'd really encourage you to take a look at that about halfway through 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I was hoping to turn there, but we're running short on time. Let's pick up in verse 10. And when you tell this people all these words and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we've committed against the Lord our God? You shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have gone after other gods, and have served and worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and have not kept my law, and because you've done worse than your fathers, and behold, every one of you follows his stubborn evil will, refusing to listen to me. If you go back and read over Jeremiah, this is word for word what Jeremiah has been saying for years. The recognition here is that when things are getting really bad, whether it's the famine we just read about or the impending judgment that Jeremiah has been promising his whole life, when it starts to uh, roll out, the people will still be going, why? And Jeremiah's only role is to just take a breath and say it again. Okay. Verse 13, Therefore I will hurl you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods day and night for I will show you no favor. In other words, you've spent your whole life serving other gods, so let's just make it official. Let's take you to their land, and let's make, let's make you their servants. Finishing up the chapter here in verse 14. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, if we just stopped at that point, it would be a really good capstone to what we've said. The idea would be nobody's going to talk about the Exodus anymore because Israel is no more. The idea here is as the Lord lives, it's, hey, what you're going through right now, don't you remember what God did for Israel? But he's already said the garment is destroyed, it's spoiled. But what he says next is a head scratcher, verse 15. But instead they will say, as the Lord lives who brought up my people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. He says, what I'm going to do in the restoration of Israel is going to eclipse 
what I did in the Exodus. It's going to replace it in the minds of the nations where when they want to cite the type of character God is, he's not the God of Exodus anymore, but the God who brought back exiled Israel. You know what the difference between those two stories is? About 1,400 years of disobedient rebellion, right? That's the difference. And so what God does here is so overwhelmingly gracious. In fact, it is through this restoration of Israel that God is going to bring about the promised Messiah and send out the message of his good, to, good news to all the nations. But it begins with this one gracious, gracious act of God restoring an undeserving people and bringing them back to the land where he has driven them. Verse 16, Behold, I'm sending many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterwards I'll send many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on their way. They're not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first I will doubly repay their iniquities and their sins because they polluted my land with carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abomination. My kids have this um, book that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. We're going on a bear hunt. And what always happens in the bear hunt is they come across something and they can't go over it and they can't go around it. They have to go through it. Okay? It's the same thing here. God says, nevertheless, the way we're getting to the return is through exile. And he says, I'm sending people like fishermen with nets to gather and hunters to pick up the scraps afterwards. This will be done First, I will, and when it says doubly pay here, most commentators believe that the idea here is actually proportionate. It is the word double, but the idea is not that God is going to heap on more than Israel deserves, but exactly what they deserve. They're just desserts, if you will. Okay. Uh, and then finishing here, verse 19, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can a man make himself gods, such are not gods? Now, this is so mind-blowing. Again, God reveals his hand and he says, this isn't just about bringing back Judah. It's going to be this whole process that reveals to the world the worth worthlessness of their idols. Remember, God's whole plan for Israel was to show the true way of worship of the true God, and they fail to. And God is going to use their failure and his restoration to show the falseness of the idols that Israel turned to. This is the big picture plan of what God's doing. This is the wide-angle lens of redemptive history. It's a little bit of a head-scratcher. Read Romans 9, 10, and 11. Okay? Verse 21, Therefore, behold, I will make them know this once. I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Remember earlier, that was Israel's complaint. Hey, God, you can't go against your name. If you send us into exile, it'll be against your name. And he says, oh, no, this is for my namesake. And it's not just to prove my justice. It also demonstrates his grace and then ultimately his ultimate goodness and, uh, and the fact that he is the only God. It's all bound up in this big, broad history with Israel. There's only a few places in the first half of Jeremiah where it pulls back the curtain and we see beyond the judgment. But this will become the primary focus of the second half of the book. But let's stop right there. Let's pray. God, Isaiah calls your judgment your peculiar work. 
It's not that it's foreign to your character, Lord, but it is not at the central part of your character. The central part of your character is love and goodness and graciousness. And that's shown even here, that even in the judgment you bring upon your people that they justly deserve. As Jeremiah lays out, exhibit A after exhibit B after exhibit C, all the evidence is damning of Israel's behavior against you, and yet after justice, you bring mercy, forgiveness, restoration, and the best news for us, you also bring a savior. And we thank you for that, Lord. And when we look at the whole of it, we have to confess like Paul did. When we look at the whole of the history, all that you're doing, we have to say how unsearchable are your judgments and your ways past finding out. Lord, we're overwhelmed by the wisdom of your plan that is so much more than we could ask or think or understand. And as Paul says in Romans 4, you've done this all so that you might be just and the justifier of the ungodly. What an amazing truth, Lord. We thank you for that tonight. We pray, Lord, that we would have better reasons than Israel. We know we have better reasons than Israel not to forsake you, not to be stubborn or calcitrant, not to be disobedient, Lord, because we live on the other side of that full expression of your mercy and grace in the coming of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for all that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.